At 18 years old, I just did a photo shoot for Sports Illustrated. I'm one of the best basketball players in the country. I'm in my first month in college, finally. And I said, I'll take a chance at dying. If you walk in my house, honest to God, you will not see one thing about basketball. I do not have one uniform, one picture, one article, but you'll go to my sink and there'll be my 15-year chip sitting there on the counter. Recovery is the greatest accomplishment of my life. Today, we're going to chart a rather indelicate course through the dark abyss that is addiction. It's an affliction that holds the potential to decimate everything in its path and leave you but a shell of a human. I've been there, but... My story just pales in comparison to that of Chris Heron, one of the world's greatest basketball players, a point guard for both the Denver Nuggets and his home state Boston Celtics, whose disease took him to just unspeakable lows before finally getting sober, followed by this extraordinary Phoenix-like journey of recovery towards purpose, towards service, and redemption as this powerful and leading voice on the topic of substance use prevention. Chris's story, which I first came across in the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called Unguarded, is truly a testament to the power of transformation and the unwavering belief that no matter how far we may fall, we can always, always rise again. If you are suffering from some form of addiction, then this episode is a must listen. But even if you're not, I encourage you to embrace this conversation as a means to better understand an affliction that baffles a lot of people, especially non-addicts, and, and which also likely touches somebody you know or somebody you love who needs help now. In closing, I want to say that we have additional resources on the topic of addiction and recovery listed in this episode's show notes at richroll.com, so please refer to that. I think it'll be helpful. And with that being said, without further ado, this is a powerful one with me and Chris Heron. It's great to meet you. Great Thank you, you for coming out to do this. I've been looking forward to this for years. Uh, I know you just came from Alabama. You were speaking to the the, the college football team there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Alabama just- football. I was. I've been going there for about twelve years, mm-hmm. and um, I was there Monday, then Texas here, and finishing the week at Texas A and M. Right. So. so, what is the mix between? Uh, like college athletes versus high schools. I mean, high school high school kids is really your bread and mm, butter in terms of- It's my of, favorite. Yeah, yeah, I think you've spoken to like 2 million kids or yeah. something like that. 2 million kids, probably like 200 high schools a year. Wow. And now middle schools. Uh-huh. You know, I first started telling my story, middle schools wouldn't have me. And then a decade later, they know they know that it's, it's, it's the appropriate time to, uh-huh. for them to listen. Yeah, well, that's a big kind of, pivot or evolution in how you approach young mm. people, right? This idea of not just sharing your story, but also um, this notion of the first day, like mm. what does it look like in the early stages of this? Because it's very difficult for a young person, for anybody, but particularly a young person to put themselves in the shoes of the mm. person at the very end of an mm. addiction story, but much more relatable to get them, get their heads wrapped around what it's like in the very beginning. After about six years of telling my story, I said, uh, I'm p- kind of playing into the narrative of, you know, finishing my story with how horrible my life was. Uh-huh. So 
I pivoted. I did a thing called Note to Self for the Today Show. And they said, you have to write a note to your younger self. And I've done two books. I was like, this is easy. 500 words, you'll fly in and film me. And uh, it took me about a month. Tapping back into that little boy was brutal. Which then told me, try to have the kids identify with the little boy, not the heroin addict on the street. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, like yourself, I was visited. It was, I think, it was maybe ninth grade, maybe eighth grade, when some guy came to my school yeah. and got up in front of everybody and told his, you know, his 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 alcoholic uh, adventures. And I remember not being able to relate mm. to it at all. I thought it was sort of interesting and fascinating. I still remember when that happened but it didn't have any impact on me mm. at all. Mm. Um, I know you had a similar experience and now you're standing in the shoes of the guy who's going to all the schools and trying to yeah. do that a little bit differently. You know, that's that. I felt like I was doing addiction a disservice, right? I think we focus so much on the worst day and we forget the first day. Mm-hmm. We're always painting this picture of how addiction ends rather than why it's beginning. So when I walked into schools, it was a very uh, difficult decision for me to do. I was six, seven years into speaking and I said, um, I'm gonna pivot. And my whole team was like, you can't pivot. So I pivoted. And as soon as I pivoted, the outreach from kids went up 300, 400%. Wow. Yeah, so that's when I knew, you know, that the first day, the first day is what kind of sticks with the kids. Right. You know? Because you're meeting them where they're at. Self esteem, self worth, trauma, um, my childhood. Yeah. You know? And kids, kids would see me come in and say, well, he was a Boston Celtic. But I was listening to one of your shows and um, the guy said, broken toy. Something about being a broken toy. Mm-hmm. And it rattled me mm. because I was a. I was a broken toy. And that's what I wanted kids to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a newer kind of lens or approach to understand addiction. I mean, you and I both got sober and, and have maintained our sobriety within the, the traditional structure mm-hmm. of, of 12 step. And I credit that program with saving my life and continuing to save my life. I'm still extremely active in that. Um, so this is not in any way uh, uh, you know, a disparagement on that. Mm. But I think there is a, a sort of trope in the rooms around not overthinking why you became an alcoholic. Mm. It's like you are because you are. And, mm. and the wisdom in that is that there's not a lot of actionable uh, uh, advice in spending too much time in your head, trying mm. to understand how you got there we're gonna focus on the tools and the steps to rebuild your life and create a better one for yourself. And I, and I get that, but mm. I think now we're seeing with people like Gabor Mate and a lot of you know social science research coming out, the connection between early childhood trauma, et cetera, that's contributing to these things. And I think it is important to understand that so that we can catch people earlier mm. on mm. and address these issues before they become out of control. Listen, I'm a, I am a 12 step guy through and through. Yeah. You know, I truly am. If it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for the 12 steps, um, I wouldn't be the dad I am, the husband. You know, it completely, completely changed me. It's just, there's other 
there's other avenues. You know, for years we shut those avenues down and now there's other avenues. Mm -hmm. Right, supplementing what mm -hmm. we already know works, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, let's get into it. I mm -hmm. wanna do, you know, an, an old school, like what it was like, what happened and, and what it's like now. So, yeah. you know, paint the picture in, in Fall River as a young kid, what was going on? My brother was a star. My father was a politician and I was up and coming. And uh, I grew up in a tough town, blue collar. I mean, it was very normal for kids my age to be walking into uh, the Sons of Italy or the Portuguese American club and, and having beers. Um, that was the culture. And the culture caught up with me. You know, I went to BC and uh, I was introduced to cocaine and not everybody can understand this, but cocaine became like my therapy. Like cocaine was my truth serum. What is it about that drug that it's, unlocks that? It allowed me to cry and just spill everything I needed to spill. Uh -huh. So I kind of fell in love with the vulnerability of cocaine and it ran wild. Right, it just it followed me everywhere I went. Um, came out to Fresno, couldn't shake it. Uh, went to treatment, came back from treatment. Got married in college, had a baby in college. That allowed me to step away from the life for a little while. Um, but I fell back into it, and you know I was just starting my career professionally. And I was introduced to Oxycontin and that was it. That was it, yeah. So we find the drugs that work for us. Mm. And part of the first day, you know, kind of idea is understanding that, you know, they, they work, mm. you know, they, you don't become an addict because it doesn't work out mm. of the gate. It's, it's, it's serving, it's filling some need, mm -hmm. right? And as a kid in Fall River, kind of rough and tumble, blue collar town, you become this superstar, high point score, 2000 points mm -hmm. in high school. And it's a town in which basketball looms large. It's mm -hmm. a Friday night lights sort of scenario, right? Where everyone's turning Very up for the so. basketball games and you're the hometown hero. And as a young person, I mean, starting around like age 14, mm -hmm. you're suddenly in a position where you're shouldering all this pressure and I was All the hopes and expectations of this town. I was playing in front of four or 5,000 people in high school. That's crazy. You know what I mean? So that 14 year old boy running through the locker room came out to 4,000 people. And you have this comfort, you're in your zone when you're on the court and you're able to do what you do so well. And yet after the game, when you're in your buddy's basement, you feel like you gotta get loaded just so you can hang out with your friends. Like that disconnect. Yeah, I don't even know if I was comfortable on the court. I might've been, you know, in hindsight, I think of how I felt. I was kind of in flight, you know, like I wanted to, I wanted to get it over with. You wanted the games to be over yeah, with. Yeah, I wanted to get to the end. You, I wanted the result before I had the result. I wanted the points before I had the points and I wanted to run. So I wouldn't even consider myself ever being comfortable on a basketball court. Wow. Yeah, yeah you said that, that you don't have a lot of love for basketball. Was it a situation in which you, at one time you did or no. was it always like a duty or? You know, it's like 
Friday night lights and, and, and the thousands of people in the gym screaming. Most of my time was spent on 102 Phillips Street, like my childhood home. And every shot I took, every dribble was, was to be better than my brother, better than my father. Um, it was just this, this shadow. It's, it's hard to explain, but it was just this shadow that I could never, ever escape it. So the love of basketball was gone. I never loved it. I loved soccer. I loved baseball, but I just never loved the game of basketball because it was just this impending doom that I was going to fail. Mm, but you didn't fail. I didn't. But I believe some of that success came because of fear of failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you can get into it and try to it's figure it all fuel. out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and trust me, I've done plenty of work to try to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, but when I go back to that little kid in the driveway, like I'm not out there because like I enjoy this. I'm not out there saying this is this is fun. I'm out there for a reason. And you know, 10, 8, 10, 12 year olds shouldn't be out there for a reason. Yeah, yeah, you should be having fun. Mm. Um, and, and of course, you're too young to have any self-awareness around any mm -hmm. of that. You're just operating reactively to this environment and you're growing up in, you know, this blue collar town that, mm -hmm. that you know, Milltown, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind mm -hmm. of having hard times. That's mm -hmm. why basketball was so important. It was this source of pride for mm -hmm. this, for this community, um, and very much a, a a work hard, play harder situation. You play the games, then you're in your buddy's basement, mm. and you're partying harder than you played on the court. Mm. I played the games to get to the basement. Like that was that that that's where the peace was for me. Like let's get the games over with, so I could finally get down into the basement. Mm -hmm. And um, that started at a young age. You know, that it was like refuge down there. Like I can escape everything. Um, Fall River is a tough town. It's tough people. I, I believe um, it played in to my future with drugs and alcohol, but I also believe because of it, it brought me out of it. Yeah. And, and that toughness. Um, but as a little boy, uh, Fall River wasn't a safe place for me mentally. Mm-hmm. Emotionally. Yeah, you have the specter uh, of your older brother and the expectations that come with that hanging over you. You've got uh, an alcoholic dad, a divorce, um, not an awesome, healthy situation for mm -hmm. a young person mm -hmm. to grow up in. But it feels like you had some guidance and some mentors mm -hmm. around you, and but you were impenetrable. Mm. I wouldn't say I was impenetrable, right? But what I would say is my parents tried hard. You know, their life was falling apart. Um, it wasn't that they've ever intentionally put me in a wrong direction, right? They know exactly where I should be on the road I should be traveling on, uh -huh. but they just couldn't get me to it. Um, and then Bill Reynolds walked into my life and, you know, he, uh, he said, I want to write a book about you. It's similar to Friday Night Lights. I'm gonna call it Forever Dreams and I'm gonna follow you for one season. And I'd never been around someone like that before. He went to Brown. He was just unbelievably therapeutic for me, calm. Um, and he, 
it, it's kind of crazy. Like he almost showed me how fucked up I am. Can I swear on here? Yeah. All right, sorry. But do you know what I'm saying? Like he almost showed me like you, you, have, you are, you're not an eight, 17 year old kid. You're not a 15 year old kid. Like we need to help you. Like he started, started trying to help me. Yeah. I never heard of that word. And at 15, 16 years old, he wanted to help me. And which allowed me to kind of look in. And that's when things started to get tough. Mm. Why did that make it tough? I would think this outsider comes mm. in, he's able to see things a little bit more clearly than somebody who just grew up in that town. He pulls you aside. He saw the truth. Yeah. But on some level to say mm -hmm. to you, listen, man, you got this huge future. You're unbelievably talented. Mm. You have this gift and I'm watching you piss it away. Mm. You're on a crash course with disaster. Mm -hmm. You need to figure this out. Mm. I didn't know how. Yeah. I didn't, I, like that's the truth mm -hmm. of it, right? Like he wanted me to figure it out. And, you know, I, Bill Reynolds, I was with him a couple hours a day, maximum. You know, I, was, I, I wasn't with him like my parents or, you know, an adult figure in my life. He popped in to, for practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, he started just introducing me to, like, it sounds crazy, but he's the first person I ever saw eat a salad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm right. not kidding you. I never saw anybody yeah. in my life. This posh guy from Brown. I'm, I'm 15 years old. And uh -huh. I've never seen anyone eat a salad. Uh -huh. And he orders a salad and a Diet Coke. And I'm like, who is this fucking guy? Yeah, you call me, you say I'm fucked up. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, are you, do you have recollection or uh, a memory of like the first time you got drunk? Like, you know, you hear, you know, in the rooms, that vividness mm. of, of that first experience and feeling like, oh, this is what's missing in my life. Like, this is the thing that is gonna- I drank cold you know. duck champagne in my basement. I think I was in sixth grade, mm. sixth or seventh grade. It might've been for my like, my 13, my, 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 my birthday party in my basement. Yeah. Um, there was a bottle of warm cold duck and me and my buddies cracked it and started drinking it. And it just gave me this ability to be something else, like to experience something else, mm -hmm. you know, not be so rigid and uptight and, and worried and concerned. Like I could just kind of loosen up. And that was, I would say that's my first experience with alcohol. Mm -hmm. But you still never felt super comfortable even on the court when you were doing your thing. Listen, the truth is I don't feel super comfortable today. That's the truth. Like, I mean, there's a lot of work that has been done and needs to be done. And I just didn't have the vehicle to do the work back then. My mom and dad didn't have the bandwidth in their world to help me through it, right? So I just kind of white knuckled it and, and plowed through it at that age. Um, and to a certain extent, I kept doing that for, for years. Yeah, well, in the unguarded documentary, mm. they make a, a pretty solid point of, of looking the other way as long as you were winning, mm. right? Like when everything's going great, you're able to get away with a lot more than you probably would have otherwise because there was so much success happening. So I think Fall River to a certain extent gets a bad rap with that. There were so many people in that area that wanted 
nothing but good for me, mm. right? Um, it was an internal issue, right? That they tried very hard to, to point me in the right direction. Um, people looked away in my life. Yeah. I don't even, I feel sad for the people who looked away from me because they just extended this world for me. Mm -hmm. You know, like I wasn't, look. I guess what I'm trying to say is I wasn't looking at people saying like, you're a sucker. You're a sucker for looking away. It was an extension for me. Like I, I, I can still go mm -hmm. down this road mm -hmm. further, mm -hmm. you know? So high school was pretty much booze, pot, some mm -hmm. psychedelics, whatever was around. Mm. Uh, but things kicked up into another gear when you get to Boston College, right? You say no to Duke, you yep. end up at Boston College, stay local, local hero boy, playing mm. in the backyard. You, uh, early in your freshman year, you come back to your dorm room, a couple mm -hmm. girls in your room, mm -hmm. some lines of Coke mm -hmm. lined up in front of you and you're faced with a choice. I am a big choice. And, and growing up as a Boston Celtic, a kid in that area, um, Len Bias, was, sure. pr was pretty fresh in my head at that time. Um, that was, was that 1980? No, it was 1987 maybe. Oh, was that much later? Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah. Um, 1986. But I, I saw this pile of cocaine on my desk and I was like, fuck Lenny Bias. And like, he just did it once and he died, mm -hmm. right? It just, it kind of shows you how sad that situation is, right? Like I literally believe that there's a very good chance that I'm gonna die if I just do this one time and I still did it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like th that, think of how sad that is. Yeah. That at 18 years old, I'm just did a photo shoot for Sports Illustrated. A book has been written about me. I'm one of the best basketball players in the country. And I'm in my first month in college, finally, out of Forever, out of my home. And I said, I'll take a chance at dying. It's kind of wild, mm. you know? But that chance, it was, and I'm very careful how I say this, but it, it was, it was a sort of freedom for me. And people who have done cocaine and certain people that do cocaine, it happens to them. It was my, it was my truth serum. It allowed me to just lay back, open myself up and say, come on in. I'm gonna introduce you to the real me, mm. you know? And that's, that's, what I, that's what I was addicted to. Well, there is something therapeutic about that. Mm. And I think it's important when we talk about uh, substance use. I know you don't like the word abuse. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, that addicts find their way to the substances that actually fulfill a certain need. Mm. It's an unhealthy avenue, mm -hmm. but there's something about that that's working for them that mm -hmm. they discover. And as somebody who grew up in a community where maybe wearing your emotions on your sleeve, mm. you know, it's probably not probably not a lot of that, right? Mm -mm. Um, it, it it was a it was a way to feel those emotions and express them. Oddly, it made me feel normal. You know, it just, it, it, it gave me this sense of peace. It slowed my world down. 
allowed me to sit on a couch and just say, I'm afraid. Like, I, you have no idea. Like, I'm in Sports Illustrated, but I'm petrified mm. of what's next. And, you know, you'd wake up the next morning and say, did I really tell the truth? You know, did I really sit down and, and, and open myself up that way? And again, that's, that's the thing about cocaine that I loved. Yeah. Um, and then it becomes a way of life. It, it works, is. It it's works a, until it doesn't. It was a funny drug, right? Like I, I was never, opiates are a different game. Like cocaine for me was more like 48 hours and two weeks off. Uh-huh. You know, it was never an everyday thing. Yeah. It just, it reintroduced themselves all the time, you know? And, and so it allows you to think like, I, I'm, not, I'm not a drug addict because I haven't done it for a month, you know? But it will be 72 hours later and the shades are drawn and I'm sitting in my house and I'm, you know, listening to people stop their cars, <laughs> go to work, get their book bags <laughs> yeah. for school. And I wanna die, uh-huh. you know? Very, it was a very depressing drug for me coming down. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you you have this kind of magical debut at Boston College, but it doesn't last very long. Mm-hmm. You end up failing a couple drug tests, big news story. Um, the hometown hero has mm-hmm. been taken down a peg. Uh, and for somebody who's harboring so much fear to have that like writ large, you know, in the newspapers mm-hmm. and media figures talking about you in a less than compassionate way, mm-hmm. I can imagine only amplified that sense of fear and doom that was already inside you. You know, in 1994, right? Like there wasn't many athletes featured as drug addicts, right? And that's, that was the headline that we got this problem child, this waste of talent, drug addict who threw everything away 50 miles from his home. Mm-hmm. I think the most difficult thing for me at that time was my mom. You know, my dad struggled with alcohol. Um, I just didn't want to let her down. Yeah. And she passed away before you got sober, right? She did. Yeah. She never saw me sober. Yeah. It was her dying wish, you know? Mm -hmm. I never gave it to her. When you think back about that 18 year old kid, Mm -hmm. what is it that you want to say to him? Hug him. I'm not going to say anything. I'm hugging him. I'm going to hold him. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna hold them real close, real tight. And if you had to diagnose what was going on with him, the source of his pain and his trauma mm. that led him to make those decisions and, and walk the path that he did, how do you make sense of that? At 18 years old, you couldn't. You know. No, but you looking back now yeah, and sure. understanding yourself with all the work that you've done on yourself. I'd pull him out of the game. You know, I, I'd, take him away from basketball. Yeah. Um, it's dark, it's deep. And uh, I had no tools, nothing. So again, and it's probably even 15 years sober, it's, it's, it's probably wrong to say, but I, I don't know what I'd say to him. I would just, I'd, I'd hug him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I'd walk through it with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he didn't have, that kid just didn't have any kind of healthy mentorship in his mm-hmm. life. Somebody who could see the kid behind the basketball glory. You know, I'm, I'm careful with that because my brother was a steady, like as far as my life in basketball, my dad, um, the only thing about my dad was his drinking got in the way. Uh-huh. Uh, my mom was phenomenal, but at 18, they were going through a divorce. So I got kind of pushed to the side. Right. So for the next six months, I sat on my mother's couch, terribly depressed. And Jerry Tarkanian called me. And he said, I'm a fan of second chances. I'll never forget that line. I'm a fan of second chances. Mm-hmm. And uh, I needed that. So he I tr- seems like he was an amazing guy mm-hmm. and, and really believed in you, really cared about you a lot and invested a lot. Mm. He to took his chance. own risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah mm. with you. We were, uh, both of our backs were up against the wall a little bit, right? He was uh-huh. fresh out of Vegas. He yeah. was going home to Fresno. I needed to get out of New England, 3000 miles away. I figured, I, I, I truly believe, and you hear it all the time in the rooms that me moving from Massachusetts to California was the solution. Right, the geographic. Yeah, and you know, obviously it chases you. Right, but in in Unguarded, you have you talk about you get you get there and you're like, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. You're calling your, your yeah yeah. I'm at Jack in the Box. <laughs> yeah, you're you're like, there's the payphone. Yeah, you know where I was telling her I can't. I'm not going to make it here. You know. Well, she was the person that I could be truthful with, right? Uh huh. She she knew that boy. You know, not many people got to know me in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, she you did. met your wife in seventh grade. Yeah, so. She was one of the few people in my life that I could go to the Jack in the Box, pick up the phone and say, I'm crumbling. I'm crumbling in Fresno, California. I've never heard of it. It's 120 degrees. I need to get out of here. Um, But the truth is I had nowhere to go, right? Mm -hmm. So it was Fresno or bust. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. 
I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. you make a good go of it for a while there. It seems like it was a relatively healthy environment mm. um, with Jerry's sort of mentorship and belief in you and a certain you know sort of team cohesion mm -hmm. there. And you had a good run for a minute. I think it started off rocky. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was in a black Angus parking lot and surrounded by you know, the SWAT team. I got into a fight in the bar. It started off rocky, right. uh -huh. you know? Um, <laughs> From an athletic standpoint, uh -huh. it was great, right? Like we're playing in front of 13,000 people, selling arena, it's live. Fresno was a lot like Fall River in a bigger sense. It was, it was a very blue collar town. And I think they respected the way I played the game. And I think they respected where I had come from. And, you know, I, I became the, the long shot, the underdog. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they, and, and I played that way. You know, I played, you know, when people say, Chris, you were talented, um, I was emotional. Like, that's what drove me, not talent. Emotion drove me. Like, when I could kick it into another gear, it was all emotion and fear. Mm. So that's where I believe I, I excelled. 
But part of me on the basketball court in Fresno knew at some point you're going to try to tap into this and it's not going to be there. Mm. Yeah, there's that, was it the first game where you come back and you're, you're playing in Boston? Mm. For Fresno, oh god, and and you know Boston fans not exactly you know, forgiving, <laughs> forgiving, right? They're booing you. Yeah, yeah. You know, here's this kid; he's back here, and and you just crush it, right? Yeah. So when you say, like, like what you're saying is when the stakes are super high, and you could tap into that emotional state and just play out of your mind. Mm. I look at it as honestly, it, humbly, I look at it as lucky. Like I just, I made my first shot which allowed me to my esteem to feel comfortable out there. Yeah. I, was, I was paralyzed with fear walking into that arena. I just got my ass kicked to University of Oregon. Now, mind you, I get kicked out of BC. I sit out a year. I'm trying to get my drug problem under control. I'm going to AA. I'm working with my assistant coach and busted my ass to, to, to get back. And I step on University of Oregon's basketball court and they destroy me. Mm. They took everything from me that game. And from Eugene, Oregon to Boston, Massachusetts, I contemplated quitting. Like, I can't do this. I can't, I can't embarrass my family. I can't embarrass myself. Um, I'm not a division one basketball player. I'm so far from that McDonald's All-American. Um, just transfer, go to a division two school and play at that level. So, so for six hours on a plane, I cried. Like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. And I didn't sleep, you know, I'm in the hotel and we're practicing and my family's coming. So there, there was an immense amount of pressure on me. Uh -huh. And I didn't do well with that. You know, I, I I didn't. I didn't do. I had I had to create it in a sense. You yeah, know what I'm a, saying. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. But I'm I'm imagining just mm. this this young kid, who's just so burdened mm. by expectation and an outsized sense of responsibility, mm. like it's life or death for you. Mm. Like if I don't play well in this game, then you it know, was life this or death. whole town is gonna yeah, yeah. turn on me mm -hmm. or, you know what I mean? Like, and, I, and I felt that about me, you know, uh -huh. like it was life or death for me. No wonder you didn't have joy for basketball. Yeah. yeah. How could you? I didn't, I think I, and that's, my, that's what I was saying. I think I excelled at being incredibly fearful like that drove the fire mm -hmm. to rip your throat out on a basketball court. Right, but- Not that I could like dribble really good and shoot on, mm -hmm. like it, it was more of that intensity that was living within me that allowed me to thrive out sure. there. Sure, but fuel, as a fuel source, fear mm. isn't, gonna, isn't gonna bode well no. long-term. And if you're harboring that much fear all the time, it's only it's your ticking time bomb mm. in terms of when you're gonna use against again, because you can't walk around with that level of discomfort being an addict without picking up at some point. And I knew it was, I knew that this whole gig was gonna end. I just didn't know when. Like you gotta think about it. I, at 18 years old, I went on this journey to be a, a professional basketball player. But at 18 years old, I knew at some point I'm gonna self-destruct. So every time I walked into a gym, every time I played in a game, I knew at some point, it's not gonna be the person across from me who beats me, it's gonna be me. Right. 
And that's it's and is it going to be tonight? It's a horrible way to live. Meaning they're going to find out. Mm-hmm. They're going to expose yeah. me. Yeah, and and you, you know, the amount of like energy that you have to output to maintain this double life, mm. so no one no one really knows what's going on with you is is exhausting. So yeah. fear, exhaustion, um, panic, doom, mm. all of that. And, and I like nineteen. I 20, loved it. Like 19? I'd be screaming on ESPN, the cameras. I'd be, I'd be an absolute maniac out there. After the game, I'd jump up onto the scorers' table and get the fans fired up, and they loved it. But there was just something about that nineteen, twenty-year-old that, as I'm celebrating, I know deep down inside that this is not gonna, it's not uh-huh. gonna be long. Yeah, it's not gonna yeah. last forever. Yeah. And it didn't. You're, no, no. you're right about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you 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 break Jerry's heart a couple times, uh, you know, and it kind of you're you're sort of it's weird. It's like this X. Like on the one hand, your your career's continuing to go up. Mm. Like you get drafted, you're playing for Denver, then you play for the Celtics. Um, but at the same time, your problems getting worse and worse and worse. Right. So it's this this weird. Confluence. It is weird. And at honestly, I can say at that time, if I look back on it, there were times I was the healthiest I've ever been. You know, like at Fresno, walking into a trailer for an AA meeting and, you know, opening up the big book and smoking cigarettes and hugging people, like I felt phenomenal, right? So there were periods of time where I had some pretty strong sobriety at 19, 20, mm-hmm. 21 years old. Um, and then I went to Denver and, you know, it was well document, documented that I went to rehab. And, uh, you know, Rolling Stone did a big piece and Fox did a reality show. So everybody kind of knew mm-hmm. um, kind of my legend. And I walked into that locker room and the guys in there immediately embraced me and said, you're a second round pick, you know, you're 33rd, you got two years guaranteed we're gonna make it 10 years. Mm. And as men who suffered through substance use with family members in the past, we will, I will not sit back and watch you suffer. So we're gonna do everything in our power for you to take advantage of this opportunity. And they did. Antonio McDice, George McLeod, Chauncey Billups, Popeye Jones, they knew my history. And they were like, it's not gonna happen here. So they, they babysat mm-hmm. for a season. And um, I wasn't perfect by any stretch, right? But I was better. I was much better. And that's why when I came back the following year and I got traded, yeah, it broke me. Do you think if you hadn't gotten traded to the Celtics and you stayed in Denver, that ultimately you would have been able to figure it out? You know what I found out in the NBA, to be truthful, um, my emotion didn't work anymore. Then it was real talent. Then it was real size. You know, that fiery, tough, you know, blue collar kid on the basketball court, like that wasn't giving me an edge mm-hmm. in the NBA. So whether I self-destructed or not, I don't think in hindsight, looking back, I would have had this, this long successful NBA career because I was, I was at my limit. Uh-huh. You know, when you're, 
when you're when Shaquille O'Neal tries to block your shot and you feel like there's a you know a, a, a tree over yeah. you. Doesn't matter how angry you are. No, yeah, yeah. that's not going to yeah. help. But you got to find some kind of other gear, right? Mm. That's a little more sustainable if you're going to operate at the highest of the elite level. And that gear required discipline. Uh-huh. It required sobriety, and and I couldn't I didn't have it. Yeah. You know, if I was going to make this work, I'm going to get sober and I'm gonna lock in and I'm gonna show up every day to put the work in. I didn't have that ability. So I knew I, knew I was gonna lose it. Um, and that's why, that's why I kind of enjoyed going to Europe. You know, I was running away again. Mm. You know, I, I won't fail in front of, I'm gonna head to Europe and fail on my own. Yeah, you're getting paid well. You can do this thing you know how to do, Mm -hmm. but the stakes are a lot lower Mm -hmm. and no one in the US is paying attention Mm -hmm. and you can fuck around and you're so far away from home. It's not gonna make the headlines in the Boston Globe. Mm -mm. I just, I'll never forget it. I I have a horrible story. I don't even know it's appropriate to be on here, right? No, tell it. So my wife wanted me to get help, obviously. And there was this pain management clinic in Boston that puts a pellet inside of you, right? So sadly, I can't even describe it because I went up there and it was $750. And we didn't have $750. So I walk into this office and my wife is sitting there and she's so happy that I'm gonna get this opiate blocker implanted in me that I... uh, I walk in the back to meet with the doctor and I had a razor blade and gauze pads in my pocket. Uh So I met with him for about 15 minutes and I said, you know something, sir, I'm gonna pass on the pellet. May I use your bathroom? I walked into the bathroom, I sliced my stomach open. I put gauze pads, tape, and I walked out and my wife saw it and she was like, way to go, babe. Yeah. And there was no pellet, the $750. Addicts are crafty, man. Yeah. Yeah, but, but, but saying that is I, I took an immense drug habit, you know, um, intense drug habit to Italy with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, and, and part of me, if I could, like those are people that I never made an amends to, the Italians, mm. the, the teams that I played for, mm-hmm. um, because they didn't get what they scouted. You know, I got off that plane and I was taken thousands, 1600 milligrams of oxys a day. Right. That's the athlete that yeah. you just acquired. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, so uh, opioids, Oxycontin, mm. enter the picture. Um, what, when was that? It was shortly before you started with the Celtics. Mm-hmm. And then that quickly ramps up mm-hmm. into a 1600 milligram mm-hmm. a day habit mm-hmm. of oxy while you're playing for the Celtics, there's a crazy story where you're warming up for a game mm. and you go out shortly before you're dope sick, you go out to the parking lot to score mm. so that you could just play the game. Completely and you normal. end up having a pretty good game, yeah, yeah. That, which is like, you had this unreal ability to play high or stay up all night, party your ass off and just mm. be an absolute wreck. And then like four hours later, take the court and, mm. and crush it. Which is I did so at a younger age, right? Yeah. Like when I got that—that that doesn't. That's not gonna. <laughs> it's not. It wasn't yeah. gonna last to in me. High school, right? But um, sixteen hundred milligrams of oxycontin a day, and I'm sitting in my locker room, and I'm like, 
I'm not feeling good. Like the early withdrawal symptoms are coming on. I'm kind of like, I got a runny nose, I'm sneezing and uh, starting to get a little achy. And I call my drug dealer and I said, listen, I'm playing. I need you up here mm -hmm. before, mm -hmm. right? I'll leave him some tickets. I'll meet you after the game. I'll give you a couple of thousand dollars and I'll get what I need. But I need you now. And he punched it and he drove and, and I kept running off the floor. No, and like, think of that moment. Like I'm starting and my family, they're so proud of me and- And this is the dream growing up in Massachusetts to play for the Celtics? I guess so, right? I mean, if you yeah. think about it, I guess so. I mean, was it really? Apparently, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really look back at it, was that my dream? Maybe my dream was to like paint and like play music, you know? Yeah. I just never was exposed to anything else but that. But my point is I was, um, I ran outside the arena with like eight minutes to go and the place was packed and I run, I leave the locker room, go left, another left down the stairs through the player's parking lot and he's waiting for me. I pay him, he gives them to me, I throw them into my mouth, I run back to the arena and they introduce me shortly after. And that's normal. Like there's people who will watch this show, you know, and say, oh, that's, I get that. Yeah, of course. And there's people who watch it will say, what a sick bastard, you know, but. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with not understanding that you need that just to be normal. Mm. Without it, there's no way you're gonna be able to play. Yeah, and I, I hate- It's not about like being in some peak state mm. of being high. Of performance, you know, yeah. Yeah, you're just trying to get to a baseline. You know, I, I think it's always, it's, it was in the beginning, it was a really hard question to answer. Like, did you ever play high? And every part of me wanted to say no. But the truth is I wouldn't have been able to play unless I was under the influence mm -hmm. with the, in the world of opiates. Mm -hmm. You know, like I didn't do cocaine before the game because it was gonna make me perform at a higher level. Um, I did opiates so I could be normal and right. perform at a normal right, level. Right, right, and that's right. the chase, right? I think, you know, even as a professional athlete, what, what you start to fall into, right? I'm, I'm, strung out on oxys and I am, I would try to like get myself away from it and get in the gym just as whether it's sprints, runs, shots, my body didn't feel right on them. I mean, without, without them. Without them, yeah. So I knew that I was gonna have to step away from the game of basketball for about six months to kind of rewire my brain and my body to the muscle memory to, to be able to perform at that level without him. Wow. So I just chased, mm -hmm. it was just a, it was just a, a, a mm -hmm. constant chase. Mm -hmm. So your time at the Celtics ends, Yeah. you go overseas, you play in all these countries, mm -hmm. Poland, Turkey, yeah. China, Italy. Uh, <laughs> you bring like a big bag of oxy with you, mm -hmm. right? Did you travel internationally with that? No, like it's a good it story. Did you you or how did, how did you actually? So, I brought some to Italy with me, I believe. Yeah, so I brought, I, I brought, it was probably like 300 oxys with me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm gonna manage this. And then the next country I went to was Turkey. And I was like, there's no way I'm bringing yeah. to Turkey. 
<laughs> right? Yeah. If no. you're of a certain age, you saw a certain movie that terrified you. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So I'm like, I'll figure it out when I get there. Uh-huh. And uh, I went on that flight without. I fought in my hotel room. My father came with me. He witnessed my withdrawals. Um, you know, I would wake up and the bed would be sideways. Um, that's how active my legs were kicking. And um, I started really trying to hustle some heroin, you know, some, mm -hmm. some, some opiates. And uh, couldn't find any. So for like a month, I'm sick. So I call a guy at home and I said, I just wired you 5,000, send me a bunch of oxys. And he sent them and the plan in a newspaper, you can't feel them, FedEx. So I get a phone call from my team that says, here's a package down at the, the local shop, but they, for some reason, they want you to come here uh -huh. to pick it up. Oh man, it's a sting. It's a total sting. Wow, in Istanbul? I went for it. I didn't care about this thing. Like there was $5,000 worth of Oxycontin in that uh -huh. package. So I go there. And as I'm sitting there at the counter signing IDs with some of my, uh, like the team personnel outside with me, I'm like, these guys are about to witness Midnight Express. Yeah. Like I'm about to get locked up yeah. in Turkey. And uh, the guy comes around the corner and he has the package wrapped in tape. And I'm like, fuck, it's it. Should I run? Should I say it's not mine? I grabbed it. So I turn around. And as I'm walking out of there, I'm like, how come nobody's tackling me? I get in the backseat of the car. I start opening up. When I get to where they were supposed to be, someone in the airport beat me to it. Got rid of all the pills and wrote me a little note. Basically like, get your shit together, man. This is, this is sad. Whoa, like yeah. a customs officer yes. who knew who intervened, you were. Intervened. Wow. Mm -hmm. That was Turkey. You can't make that shit up. No. What you can't make up is the fact that I went, you know, like that's-, that's Well, that's, I mean, that's addiction in a nutshell. Mm. And I think that's what people who don't have familiarity with this disease mm. don't understand. Like mm. it's gonna drive you to just make insane decisions mm. because nothing else matters. Mm. I'm on that drive over, right? To the, um, the FedEx in Turkey. And I'm like, I have a child. I have a wife, but there's a chance I'm gonna feel better. And there's a chance I'm gonna go to prison. And I went for it. Mm. That's wild. Mm. And for many people, maybe that would have been wake up call enough. Mm -hmm. Not for this guy though. No, <laughs> no, it wasn't. And, and sadly, right? Like I yeah. say, I, I, I tell these stories with great pain and yeah. embarrassment. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I never, I don't get any enjoyment or, or it's, it's painful to say, because I know at, on the other end of this, like my son who's 25 and my daughter who's 22, they're gonna go on and they're gonna watch this interview. But they know these stories. They do. And they, they know do. you and but they the, know the way that you've showed up over mm, the last 14 years. But it doesn't mean they wanna always hear them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I signed, I, I, that's, when I did Unguarded, our world changed. That was a big deal. I mean, that, that documentary is so powerful mm. and unbelievable. I had no idea. 
honestly, and it didn't even happen by accident. Like John Hawk could tell you, most of the footage, the hours they spent with me was me teaching kids how to play basketball in a gym. At the tail end of them wrapping up filming, I got a couple of speaking events and he followed me and he said like, this is, this is the documentary. Right. I'm gonna tell it, you're gonna tell it in your story. Um, and that's where Unguarded came from. It was not supposed to be me telling my story. And you know, I had no idea 15 years ago, 14 years ago, how powerful that would be. Yeah. The mission was to, for outreach, right? Someone just say, hey, I want help. Like if someone can hear my story and say, I wanna stop my recovery process, that was really my mission at its core. And I would walk into these schools and I would tell this story of my life. And they would message me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and say, I'm so happy for you. God bless you. Hope you stay sober for your kids. I had 3000 kids in that gym and nobody told me their story. Mm. So I'm like, how am I not interacting with the, like, why can't I get to them? Um, so I pivoted and did the first day. And, and you know, I, I don't, I mean, it was said long before I said it, right? But I think we put way too much energy and effort in the, the worst day and we forget the first day. You know, everybody wants to say how bad it got, not the reason it began. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes you look in. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, you're a parent, right? You, your son, your daughter, there's parents out there that their kid walks in shit-faced, cockeyed, you know, like drunk. First question is, where'd you get it? How'd you get it? How much did you drink? Who'd you do it with? What time did you finish? Never why. Parents right. don't ask why. Right, it's fear and punishment, basically. Um, but the why is everything. Mm, I think so. I think that that allows us to kind of open it. Right, right. You know, I'm like, dad, maybe my self-esteem isn't as good as you think it is. Mm -hmm. You know? Why did you feel like you needed to do that mm. to be with your friends? Mm. And the first day idea is this notion of meeting kids where they're at by sharing what it was like for you at the beginning, not necessarily the end, because no high school kid can imagine mm. that that's how their life is gonna turn mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. but relating to them why it was that you made those decisions early on mm. and then being curious about their lives. Mm. And it's also, a very compassionate way of communicating with mm. young people because you're treating them like sentient beings as mm. opposed to judging them or coming at them from this, you know, holier than thou, you shouldn't do this. Yeah, if you crazy. do this, this is gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. Like it just doesn't work. It didn't work for me, right? But I became that. Yeah. That's why I pivoted. Like, I mean, I, we started off this interview, Len Bias was the first thing I said. And that wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. Len, Midnight Express in a Turkish wasn't prison enough. wasn't enough. Right, exactly. So that's not enough. Mm. So what, what can I do? I can try to reverse, go backwards, get that boy under the bed, on the bed, pull him out of the bed and sit with him mm -hmm. and try to make peace with him. Yeah. You know, like I had a therapist who said to me, 
how great would it be to spend time with that little kid? You know, like how great would it feel to like get to know him? You've stored him away for so long. Like we need to bring him out. And, and what would you what would you say to that little Chris? Now? Ooh, uh, I'm a I'm a super emotional. I'm like a big I'm like a big baby, right? I would I would cry on his shoulder, man. I'd hug him. Like people say that to me all the time. What would you say to your younger self? I don't I don't know if I'd be able to speak. I would just hug and hug and hold and hug. I think that's what that would be my mm -hmm. my approach with with the younger version of me. Yeah. I've seen you do that with other high school kids too. Mm. At the end of these talks that you give, these presentations, you embrace these young mm. people and you just hold them mm. and you say you're not alone. We're huggers. You don't even need to say anything more than that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They feel heard, they feel seen, they feel understood. The recovery community is a bunch of huggers. Yeah. Right? And um hugs feel good. You know, and and to walk up to to a kid who's struggling and give them a hug and hold them and and tell them that I hear them, that's why I do what I do. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I want to get through the rest of the story. I want yeah. to hear, you know, kind of... Uh, how it all how it all falls apart and, mm -hmm. and and ends up. So, you're in you're in Turkey. You're in China. Mm. I hear the heroin in China is pretty good. Mm. You're spending all your money. <laughs> I'm smiling. <laughs> somehow, like, how sick am I? Somehow, like you said, heroin in China is good, on. and I I'm smiling. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, 
Yes, heroin in China was is <laughs> extremely good. Okay. Um, I uh, I'll never forget it. I, I I walked into a nightclub in China and I was like forty five days sober, and I asked this kid if he could get cocaine. Like I got a little buzz on in a nightclub in China, and uh, he said, "Ah, absolutely." And he walks out, comes back in, gives me a little bag, and I walk into the bathroom and I do the line of cocaine, and I know within 15 seconds that he just sold me heroin. Mm. So I was off and running. Was that your first heroin experience? No, no. That was in Italy, trolling the train stations. Yes. Yeah. The guy had it tied to his tooth. So like, think of that, right? He jumps in my car and he starts doing this. And I'm like watching this string come up and he's got a little baggie. Oh, he like swallowed it? Anchored it to his tooth. Oh my God. Wow. Mm And and uh, and then he does he shoot you up for mm-hmm. the first time? Mm-hmm. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then I went away from shooting up. Right? Then I because I, I was completely a sniffer, and then sniffing wasn't enough. Mm. Um, and then I turned into like there were people that had to do it for me, and then I went to the doing it myself. Where does the whole house of cards collapse on top of itself? The house of cards collapse um, multiple overdoses. Um, the last time I was 32 and uh, I put Chris and Sammy on a school bus and daddy is gonna walk up to the liquor store, get my pints of vodka. And I'm gonna stop at a little Cumberland Farms and I steal the ashtrays, right? The cigarettes that were poked out were my cigarettes. So I would take a scoop of a bunch of strangers' cigarettes Mm. and I would sit at my house and I would drink vodka and I smoke their cigarettes and wait for my kids. And I got a phone call that day, come down, I'm gonna take care of you. I jumped in my car, drove, I had about a pint and a half of vodka in me, knowing I shouldn't. He pulled up on the side of me, he threw it through my window, I shot it. And I immediately knew that I was overdosing. And the only thing I can remember is saying the school bus. Like, I cannot not be there when they get off the bus. Like I cannot have my kids live in that moment of fear. Like where's my dad? Mm-hmm. So I started driving and, and they found me like a mile away crash into a cemetery. And I woke up in the back of an ambulance and I thought, okay, I'm going to the hospital. Um, you know, I'm gonna kill myself. Like I'll go through the motions here, but once I get away from the police, I'm gonna kill myself because I don't wanna do this to my family anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm 32, Chris is nine, Sammy's seven, Heather's pregnant, like I'm over this. And- uh, And basketball career's over. Yeah, basketball's long gone. Um, we had nothing left. Food stamps, you know, no lights. Some nights, no heat in the house. It was hard. Like we lived hard. And and you're back in Fall River. No, I'm living in Portsmouth, Rhode Island at the time. Okay. My mom passed away, and she left she left me and my brother a home. Uh-huh. And Heather and I were living in that with the kids. Yeah, but not a lot of good friends around anymore. I didn't want support. Friends. You know, a buddy of mine um, sent me a collage of my mug shots. And like one day they popped up in my phone, like his 
his like the a collage of wow. mug shots. And one of my last mug shots, um, I was so broken. Like I didn't recognize myself, right, mm -hmm. at all. But the first thing I thought of was Heather. <clears throat> she stayed with him. Like that, she, she, she walked with me. Yeah. You know, whether it's birthday parties, in school parent meetings, I walked with her. And she pulled me along like that. Like that's what I thought of as soon as I saw the mugshot. Like my poor wife. This woman that you've been with since seventh grade, yeah. who stood by you through all of the insanity. Mm -hmm. And there's two different ways of looking at that. You can look at that and say, what unbelievable fortitude oh, yeah. uh, and, and belief um, that she held mm. in you and your ability to overcome this. And then on the other hand, you can look at it and say, she was insane mm. to stick around. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure everyone in her life was telling her to run, run away many times. Mm -hmm. Always. Um, she wanted that little boy back. You know, she saw me probably at my most innocent uh, phase of my life, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, you know, like I was just, I was still in the driveway. Uh huh. You know what I mean? I wasn't playing in front of 4,000 people. There were no lights on me yet. Um, you know, she was someone I could talk on the phone all night to and fall asleep on the phone and, and talk to my, about my parents' divorce, right? So she's been in it since the beginning in, in the fight. You know, it was just a different type of fight. Yeah. Um, but addiction, it causes people to get sick. And, and we were both very sick. As a family, we were both very, very sick. Um, you know, one year in active addiction, like you close your eyes and it's 10 years later. Like you just wake up. I woke up and I was 32, like, holy shit. Um, time flew for all yeah. of us. Yeah, but you're, meant, you're emotionally stunted. Oh, like, big yeah. Time. So it's yeah, like yeah. when you finally stop, I'm still emotionally you, <laughs> you have the uh, maturity and emotional skills mm. of the age of the person you were when you began. Yeah. So you're looking at 12. like a 14 year old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah so yeah, where are we course. at now? Like 19. Yeah. Maybe? We're probably like, around, uh, I give myself maybe like 20. Yeah. I'm hoping, <laughs> I hope in a, like 26, 27, maybe. Right. I'm getting there. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I think so. The uh, prefrontal frontal cortex is, is developed. Almost, uh, yeah. yeah. It's almost, yeah. It's almost yeah. online. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so the mug shots. Yeah. The overdose, the crash into the cemetery. Um, is this where you end up in, in, in treatment courtesy of Chris Mullen? Yeah. So it is. But, but before that, and I, I was going, I'm walking out of the hospital and suicide is the plan. Like the handcuffs were taken off. I was discharged and I'm walking out and I said, I'm gonna kill myself and a nurse intervened in my life. And she intervened by telling me that she saw me play basketball when I was a kid and she was friendly with my mother mm. and my mom had passed away. So her saying she knew my mom, I broke. And I'm like, I'm thinking about killing myself 
but you know my mom hugged me and she she brought me back into the hospital and created the opportunity of Chris Mullen to come in. Chris Mullen might have never walked into my world if she didn't walk out of the hospital and chase me down. Mm. And she's a nurse. She, mm -hmm. Like you don't have to leave the emergency room and run down the street. Um, that's not in her job. Yeah. So her name is Diane Reed. Um, it's because of her. Mully and his wife Liz um, gave me the gift. Mully calls me up and says, I got a buddy named Murph and Murph is gonna help you go to a treatment center. I never met Murph, mm -hmm. right? Murph facilitates, navigates the treatment center for me. And um, I checked into this center called Daytop in Rhinebeck, New York. And Murph talked to him a couple times on the phone, thanked him, how you doing, checking in, yada, yada. So um, I go home and relapse. Murph stops calling me. Um, they doubled down on my wife, Liz Mullen. Murph said, you know what? We're going to focus on Heather's well-being at this point, which mm -hmm. I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, um, nine years sober, maybe eight years sober. And Molly's getting inducted into the Hall of Fame and Murph is coming. I never met the man that put me in treatment. I hadn't met him. So I was so incredibly emotional and ready to hug this dude. And he died that day. He never made it to Springfield, Mass. Wow. I never met the man. I've never hugged or met the man that saved my life. Murph. Yeah. So you just never know. Like, be somebody's Murph. Murph didn't need the, to be out front, you know? Yeah. But he just did the work for me. He got me there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that lingering feeling like you don't have closure there because mm. you couldn't you couldn't give that guy a hug and and also oh. knowing your mom your mom didn't you know didn't survive to see you get sober oh i've hugged murph i've hugged them i've hugged them extremely close and strong for the last 15 years you know like without murph i wouldn't be here mm -hmm. um my mom that was her dying wish she never saw her son sober i wish i'm so I love sitting down with people and saying like, you have an opportunity for your mom or dad to see you sober. And I, I lost that, um, but I believe she sees it. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe my mom's kind of walked with me in this journey. I think yeah. I got the Murphs and moms behind me. Yeah. Um, in that treatment center mm. where you lived for 11 months, mm -hmm. You went out for a minute, mm -hmm. came back. Uh, you 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 basically find God in this tiny little kitchen. What's it called? The pot, pot wash. Sink. The pot, pot sink. sink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you, you know, and unguarded. There's a there's a scene where you're standing there. It's mm. this tiny little room with a bunch of sinks, mm. right? And you're like, this is where I was from dawn to dusk mm -hmm. every single day. It was my punishment for relapsing, right? So so. It was behavioral modification. They can't really do it anymore. So it's, it's wearing signs saying I'm a scumbag. 
announcing yourself as a loser. So <clears throat> really, um, that was that was kind of the bulk of my punishment for relapsing when Drew was when Heather gave birth to Drew. Mm -hmm. I went home, I relapsed, I failed terribly. And I went back completely broken. And they said, get in the pot sink. So from 4.30 in the morning till eight at night, you're gonna wash dishes for this community. And there was 96 of us living in there. And um, lunch, breakfast, lunch, dinner, guys would walk by and just throw trays and dirty stuff through the window. And I had, I had hoses, sinks, and I would spray them down and I would get them in the dishwasher. Um, I had no contact. So I couldn't lie to my wife. I couldn't promise my wife. I couldn't over, I couldn't do anything. It was just me in the pot sink. And that's when things started to turn for me a little bit because, you know, it's kind of like I let go and I let her kind of come in. And, uh, the next time I talked to Heather, she was pulling up with a two month old infant and my two children walking into Daytop to have a family meeting. Mm. Yeah, this surrender, the letting mm. go, uh, the, the, the finally putting to bed any idea that you're there to save your marriage mm. or to be whatever, like mm. letting go of all of that and mm. just focusing on being present with what you're doing. Just be still, right? Allowing whatever yeah. is meant to happen, mm. happen. I know that uh, one of the counselors said something to you like, you know, the most compassionate, benevolent thing that you could do is to call your wife and, and tell her you're never coming home. Mm. And it went, it went even a, a, a little deeper. Um, he said, play dead for them. Like, why don't we fake your death, car accident and, and let them go? Let your children emotionally you know, get rid of you in a sense. And um, I said that to myself countless nights. Like I knew that there was a better man out there than me. <laughs> I knew my wife deserved a better man than me. Mm -hmm. I knew my children should have had a better dad than me, provider. And, um, but when he said it, it kind of hit me. You know, like I went to bed with that narrative. Um, but him saying that out loud to me was probably extremely reckless therapeutically, mm -hmm. but it's one that I'm extremely grateful for. Yeah, I mean, I feel like among the you know countless relapses and mm. many stabs that you had that you had made into sobriety, nothing was really able to penetrate your mm. core until your wife said, "That's it, I'm done," mm -hmm. and this guy said, "Pretend your family's dead," mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. that that seemed to seep into you in a, in, a, in a way that really changed you. Yeah, really profound moments, right? Like Heather, the nurse, right? all of a sudden the Mullins with Murph and you the know, angels, the counselor. The angels, yeah. the Eskimos. Yeah. Yeah. The Sherpas. Yeah. To get me up Everybody that, needs one. To get me up that mountain, absolutely. And, and anybody I, can be that person for somebody else. And I'm really proud of that. Like I, I, I I am so incredibly blessed that in my recovery, I've, I give it to others in a sense, you know, like it's, I'm here because of them. Mm -hmm. 
And I've always lived that way. From the, fr- I went to bed at night dreaming of being Chris Mullen. That was my dream. Not Chris Mullen, the, the shooter. Chris Mullen, that man who picked up the phone and helped me and my family. I dreamt of that. Like that was my, the game of basketball and millions of dollars was no longer my dream. My dream was just to be on the other end of that phone call. Mm. And I think I've made that dream come true. You 100% have. Mm. Um, it's, it's one of the principles, our primary purpose is to stay sober and mm-hmm. help another alcoholic achieve sobriety. But you have taken that to an entirely new level, my friend, because you are not only of unbelievable service to mm-hmm. so many people, you've repaired your life, you've you know, repaired all of your relationships with your family, et cetera. You're this incredible, incredibly present dad and your entire life mm-hmm. is about giving back mm-hmm. this gift that you've been given. And that's rare. I mean, service is part of what it means to be sober in this program, mm-hmm. but, um, but to really shoulder that responsibility mm-hmm. and take it so seriously that you're you know, delivering, I don't know, 200 speeches a year, mm-hmm. like you're constantly on the road. You have a self-awareness that your story resonates mm-hmm. because of you know, the extraordinary things that you've done with your life. And that gives you a rare opportunity mm. to connect with all kinds of people because mm. they're gonna pay attention to you in a way that they might not to somebody else. And for some of those young kids, it's their first introduction to what a sober man looks like, yeah. you know, and what their stories sound like. Um, Heron Project, you know, my foundation, that was the dream. Um, Heron Talks evolved mm-hmm. into me traveling and telling my story. And, uh, and now you have a treatment, you have two I treatment have, centers, yeah. right? And I love it. Mm-hmm. I like, I keep it real raw that I'm not a clinician. I'm not, I, that I'm the furthest thing from that. I don't pretend to be because I'm gonna have a foundation around substance use. I have a, uh, a wellness center. I'm just, I'm just how they say like a bozo on the bus, you mm-hmm. know? And, but I get a front row seat. I watch families, husbands like me, fathers like me walk in on day one and then to sit in their year celebration and see their children. Like yeah. that's not many people get that opportunity. Yeah. You know, not many people, that's, that's what's so incredibly beautiful about Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, the guy used to, in old time, he used to tell me, wait till you see the miracle. Mm-hmm. And I, honest to God, in the beginning, I thought he was talking about me. I'm like, okay, one day I'm gonna look in the mirror, I'm gonna see the miracle. So you believed in that from the get-go? No, not what I believed in is that I was the miracle, wrong. It was the newcomer that walked in at like 18 months and I witnessed uh-huh. it. Right. I witnessed their Seeing change. Seeing the lights go on in yes. somebody else. Yeah, Right. that was the miracle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just got a big smile on your face. Yeah, yeah like your, your whole facial expression just changed. Yeah. And that's how I know it's for real, mm. you know? Um, in all of the talks that you've given, all of the kids that you've spent time with, like what have the kids taught you mm. about how to communicate with young people and how to understand them? I mean, there's a lot of parents, I suspect listening mm. to this, who maybe have a kid who's having mm. a hard time. Maybe it's substances, maybe it's not, maybe it's something mm. else, but like just being a teenager, mm. no matter who you are and where you live mm. is fucking hard. Very. And I think a lot of parents 
myself included. Mm. It's like, how do I understand this young person? How do I connect with them? How do I get on their level? And you're almost like a, like you're a, what do they call it? Like a, not a soothsayer, like you're, you're like a whisperer, like mm. a teen whisperer on some level. I mean, just to me, I look at it as I'm, I'm a vehicle, right? Like there's plenty of people that are gonna follow up on my message mm-hmm. that can deliver what they need, right? And that's why with Heron Project, years ago, we hired clinicians because I felt irresponsible walking into a school telling my story because there was nothing there on the back end. So now we have the back end. Right. So when I walk into a school and I tell my story, those kids reach out, those kids will be helped. You know, we, we will find, we will, we'll deliver for mm-hmm. those kids. Um, so I'm, I'm just a small, I'm just a small part of it, you know, like, and I like that. I like the fact that, you know, I'm in that school for an hour and a half and I'm going, I'm, I'm going to tell my story and I'm going to hopefully get, whether it's good or bad, get kids to walk out and, and mm-hmm. tell a little bit of theirs. Did you ever imagine that your life could have so much impact? Like, it's crazy. It's so far beyond anything that you could have ever achieved, even if your wildest dreams as a basketball player mm. had come true. Mm. Like what you're doing now is so much more meaningful and, and profound. It is, and, and I, but I, in full transparency, I gotta be careful with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've run hard for the last 14 years. Yeah. I've run really yeah. hard. And getting up and sharing your story and talking to all these kids is not recovery. No. But you can delude yourself yeah. into thinking, well, all I do is recovery all day long. No, 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 but not even close. It's actually, it pulls you away yeah, from it's, it. It's working at cross purposes. And I'm very, I'm very open and honest. And I tell people in my center that are current, currently living there, year 12 to 15 were the toughest years of my life. Why? Because I, I, I drifted away. I drifted away from the core. Mm. I, isolate, I, put, I isolated myself, you know, COVID, mm-hmm. all of it. It just pulled me away from where I needed to be. And it was an extremely difficult three years. And when I celebrated 15 years the other day. Um, Congrats, man. Yeah, no doubt. I, uh, That's right, August 1, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I shared that, you know, that it was, uh, 15 was a, a motherfucker, like to get there, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, and I had hip replacement surgery on June 8th, uh, July 8th. And um, after hip replacement, I lost Bill Reynolds and I lost a man by like, he's on my arm. I got it way before he passed away. I lost Chucky Monas. Mm. I lost the two men in my life that were willing to tie themselves to me during the storm. Like the two men who would, they would anchor to me in a heartbeat, no matter how high, how low, they were with me. And uh, I came out of surgery and I, I was told that I lost them both two days apart. Oh, wow. And I'm laying in bed and I'm recovering from hip, from hip replacement. But I guess- and you the, got access to drugs if you want it. I guess, yeah, but I guess yeah. the point is, is for me, where what recovery allowed me to see is God kept me still. Like 
hip surgery, like I was in, I was in his hands. Mm -hmm. I was still, I couldn't run. I couldn't do anything but face what I was facing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a perspective yeah. that recovery. Has that allowed you to, to kind of reinvest in what you know works? Totally. And get back? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went through that. COVID was rough, man. Mm. I really struggled with yeah. the Zoom thing. And it's only recently that I've really tapped back into like my core group Co of guys. COVID was like the exact opposite of what I need. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let me drag you out way into the woods and try to find your way right. out of here. And my disease is telling me like, oh, isolation. I can yeah, do this. Perfect. I actually like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? Why? I, yeah. I was living saying, how come they didn't have COVID when I was shooting heroin? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I would kill for COVID back then. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. I think it was not great for mm. the recovery community. Um, I'm not, you know, listen, 12 to 15 was a beast. Mm -hmm. One through 12, I walked right through it. 12 to 15 was, was a battle. Yeah. You know? How do you think about the languaging? We, you know, I'd mentioned earlier, like mm. you, you, you shy away from saying substance abuse. Mm. You like to call it substance use. Mm -hmm. um, and you're very conscious about word choice when mm. it comes to how you talk about this condition. I am, I think it's necessary. I think it's, it's kind of softened the stigma that's that that is attached to it. I um I don't like the word rock bottom. Um why refer to probably your saddest moment in life as rock bottom? Um I just think we have to be better. Mm -hmm. I think we be Well, I think the I think behind that, at least for me, mm -hmm. is uh is the fact that we already hate it. We mm. already hate ourselves. Mm. We're already like our own. So let's attach worst some critic. tough. Yeah, exactly. So when yeah, on top of that, yeah, you know, a headline in the Globe that says, you "What know, a shame!" Yeah, what a shame or whatever. It's like we're already ashamed of yeah, ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Terrible. So you're ashamed. just you're just basically putting kerosene on mm -hmm. that fire, mm -hmm. and and amplifying the guilt and the shame and the fear and all of that. And a compassionate approach to treatment and recovery requires or or could use a little bit mm. more of of empathetic languaging around it. I think so. You know? you know, and I try very hard at it. Yeah. I think it's it's necessary. I think, you know, again, I don't think they could have the headline, what a shame today. Right. I think if I found myself in a Dunkin' Donuts drive-through overdosed with a needle, I don't think the newspaper would say, what a shame. And I think that shows you how far we've come mm -hmm. in the last decade, two decades around substance use and addiction. You're out talking to professional coaches mm -hmm. and athletes. What is the state of the union in terms of, of kind of re recovery awareness mm. in the professional leagues or on the college teams so that there's some kind of safety net or something in place for the kid like you who shows mm. up and has a problem? The safety net is that they're bringing me in. Yeah. But, but that's not enough. Yeah, there, there needs to be- Do you know what I mean? Be, like there's, yeah, not, yeah. There's, not a, there's not a lot of, of alternative support in a sense when it comes to that type of stuff. Like I go to schools, very wealthy, successful division one football programs. And I'll sit down with a coach who's been there for seven, eight years and he's never sent a kid to treatment. How is that possible? How is that possible? Yeah. He's got 120, 18 to 22 year old kids 
and you never sent one kid to treatment. And then there's other coaches, and without even getting into it, because I don't, I would, I would, I'd want permission. Um, he's one of the best coaches to ever coach, and he's all about it. He's all about sending kids away. Mm -hmm. He's one of the best coaches that will ever step on a football field, and to me, that's his greatest achievement. That when his players are struggling, he sends them. Yeah, yeah. If you were in charge, if you were running the NC two A, or you were the commissioner of the NFL or whatever, what kind of programs would you try to create? It would just be a lot of awareness, right? A lot of like, I, I don't, I don't even think there's kids out there that understand what recovery is. You know, I think we show up to a college campus and it's like, here's the weight room. Mm-hmm. Here's the locker room. Here's the gym. But what about? There's the frat house and there's the bar. What about my mental health? You know, how about when things get really low for me? Where do I go then? Who do, who's going to kind of catch me when, when, I'm, when I'm struggling? We don't do enough of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think we're getting better, but I think athletes have been looked at as racehorses. We got four years of this kid in college and we'll see what happens. Right, and to even discuss or bring up the topic of, of mental health mm. is, to, is to kind of imply weakness. Mm. And you're not here to be weak, you're here mm. to be strong. So if you're struggling, keep it to yourself and you know, buck up. Mm. But most people show up with mental health. Yeah, of course. Like who doesn't? Of course. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course. What kid isn't gonna show up to cal- uh, college campus and have some type of trauma, something that he's gonna need help with. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to wait to rock bottom. Yeah. Or, or something happens, the cops get involved. Yeah, that's when we react. Yeah, right. So, um, What's the advice that you give to the parent who comes to you mm. and says, my kid's got something going on. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to communicate with him or her. Um, I don't know how to get this kid to pay attention and understand that he's headed in the wrong direction. I'm sure you get that question a lot. Let a professional step in. Let, it, let somebody step, like for instance, my dad, like I hate saying this, but he's drinking himself to death currently. Mm. My dad's dying from alcoholism and he lives 10 minutes from me. And it's crazy because obviously he knows what you're doing and what you've done. Of course. And that just speaks to the insanity of the whole Mm -hmm. thing. I've never, listen, I've sent away through Heron Project and I say this very humbly, like thousands, I think 4,000 people in the last 10 years to treatment through Heron Project, through my foundation. I can't help my dad. It's too close. It's too raw. It's too intense. Like I have to let others Uh intervene and have a conversation with him. Um, I can't do it. As much as, 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 as with everything I've been through, the experience I have, the, the wellness center, the foundation, I'm still a boy talking to my dad. Yeah. And it's really hard for parents also, because you don't wanna be codependent. Mm. You wanna keep the channel of communication open, but you don't wanna be a doormat either. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's very confusing. And I think a lot of parents 
they're afraid to share their vulnerability. You know, I think there's a lot of parents out there. Like I get, listen, I, kids email me all the time after I go to their school. And I think there's a lot of parents out there today acting like high school was the best time of their life. And their daughter is completely lost and clueless because she's not living up to that expectation. Mm. Like high school is really, really hard and it has been hard. And I think parents don't wanna share those vulnerable moments. You know, and just an example, like, so Jordan, Shaq, Kobe, I played against them. There's a guy named Richie Mellon who bullied me in sixth grade. I can, I can tell you everything about Richie Mellon. What he wore to school some days, where he waited for me. I can't tell you anything about Michael Jordan, but I can tell you about Richie Mellon. Uh-huh. That says a lot. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot of parents out there that don't want to share those moments, mm-hmm. those losses with their children, which it could be an opportunity to, to identify. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I think that kind of vulnerability is always mm. rewarded mm-hmm. and appreciated. Me too. Um, there's so much talk about the, op- the opioid crisis and now increasing awareness around fentanyl mm-hmm. and what's going on there. It's insane. Um, but I don't think there's enough solid conversation around what's going on with marijuana mm-hmm. and marijuana psychosis. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if marijuana has become so mainstream mm-hmm. that there's this idea that it's benign mm-hmm. at worst. And as somebody who's on the front lines with all of these kids, like what, because I know what I'm hearing and seeing. Yeah, yeah, like, sure. What are you hearing it's on the that scariest, It's the scariest thing I see in my center as a father, right? Like I have a 22 year old, a 15 year old and a 25 year old. Um, when a kid who shows up at my center with mom and dad holding their suitcases and he's in a psychosis, it is, it, it, it rocks me to my core. It hits me in places that I don't normally get hit. And uh, I've never seen it. Um, I've been in psychosis, crystal meth and, and cocaine, but the marijuana psychosis that I've witnessed um, with kids and young adults is, is one of the scariest things. You know, marijuana and alcohol have gotten a hall pass. Mm-hmm. You know, like fentanyl has become the, the headlines. And the truth is 70% of this country currently of people in treatment are in treatment for alcohol, but nobody says it. Yeah. You know, and now marijuana, like you said, benign. They, they framed it, they structured it, they marketed it, they sold it as benign. Right. I mean, in Los Angeles, there's billboards it's for awful. dispensaries everywhere and the dispensaries look like Apple stores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the messaging and the marketing, particularly to young people is, this is aspirational, mm. right? This is nothing to be scared of or to mm. have any kind of trepidation about. And I can just tell you as somebody living here, who's mm. a parent to young people, it's so unbelievably accessible. Mm. Alcohol is, is Mo- far secondary mm. to, to marijuana yeah. with young people. It, it has now taken over, right? It's, it's like you said, it is alcohol secondary. Um, it's, I never thought that I would see the impact I've seen around marijuana. I was uneducated on it, right? I almost thought it was benign, right? It gave me the munchies and made me eat 
you know, like little paranoia when I was a kid. Today's marijuana is different than yeah, it's 19, because it's so potent. Nineteen ninety. Yeah, yeah, it's potent, and um, it just breaks my heart. From a again, and I'm very careful with this, right? Although I've dedicated my life around parts of recovery, I'm also in the room, right? And I'm one of. Mm -hmm. So I tend to stay away from that little expert seat and stay in the middle of the pack. And um, it hits me on a, on a level that, um, that I haven't been hit on in, in a long time when I see kids coming into my center with marijuana psychosis. So what does that look like? Mm. A little schizophrenia, um, outbursts, complete isolation and going inward. Um, it comes out in different forms, right? Um, but the scary thing is you don't know when it's gonna clear. Mm -hmm. You know, like a doctor can't walk up to and say, your daughter's psychosis will be done in 12 days. You just don't know. You know, we've had young adults come into our center that stayed six to nine months and still struggle. Mm -hmm. And then we've had, We've had young adults that came in and after a month you saw improvement. You just, it's just, you can't call it. Yeah. What is it uh, that you're doing in your, in your centers and your treatment facilities, mm -hmm. your wellness centers um, that maybe is a little bit different than what one might find at a typical mm. treatment center? When I opened it six years ago, I said, I'm gonna offer as much as I can. Right, so I didn't go to a center like mine. Um, there was kind of the narrative, like you gotta go to a place that's hard yeah. in order to get it, you know, and I didn't wanna live there. Um, so very holistic, nutrition, sleep, yoga, guided meditation, breath work, mm -hmm. um, personal trainer, you get all of that at my right, center. Right, like all, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not just, we're gonna Cigar find. Cigarettes, you yeah. know, sitting around a circle. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. No, no. <laughs> I couldn't live with myself. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Like I couldn't uh -huh. be that guy. You can make a lot more money uh -huh. being that guy in the business. Yeah. Like if I just threw a bunch of big books and and threw out cigarettes and and said come back come back here in an hour, it'd be a lot different. Um, but people find peace in so many other places. And again, like, why don't people track sleep? in early recovery, right? Like let's kind of mm -hmm. gauge when you're gonna be at your best the next day. You know, like maybe you only slept four hours. Maybe that's not the best time to go sit down with your life coach, your therapist. Why don't you take a couple of hours, get some rest and we'll, we'll revisit this later. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we can be much more um, dialed in. Yeah. You know? I think there's so much room for improvement. improvement oh, gosh. in this space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was lucky enough to go to a great treatment mm. center and I was there for a hundred days and saved my life. And mm -hmm. I just, I, you know, I can't say enough good things about it, but I know there's a lot of bullshit mm. in this industry. You know, mm. it's heartwarming to, you know, sit across from somebody who's doing it right and is thinking about how to really serve because there's a lot of, I don't, I, don't, I don't even wanna call them treatment centers. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, so we're living houses, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. They're like hedge fund guys, real estate plays, mm -hmm. renting 
mansions. That's what it is. And they can they can rent out those bedrooms for a multiple on whatever mm-hmm. their, you know, whatever the mortgage is. Mm-hmm. And they're just churning cash mm. and it has nothing to do with helping people get better. Mm. And that's someone else's story, right? Like for me, I get I go so far into it that I track the obviously the length of stay, male to female, average age. I track, I have data on which life coach in my center is best with mm-hmm. young adults, women, men, you know, under under 30, over 30. So if someone comes into my center and and she's 45 years old and she's a mom, I'm putting in her, I'm putting her in a specific room with a woman who's like 42% with women her age. Right. You know, like I'm I'm identifying that before. You know, you'll, you, you, you have a, a small window of time with this. You know, it's like 30 days, 60 days, yeah. 90 days. You don't, have a lot, you don't have a lot of time. They're going through detox. They're going through withdrawal. They're, they're not sleeping at night. They're struggling with their nutrition. They don't have enough energy. Um, so I wanted to kind of come in from every angle I possibly could at my center. And at the end of the day, it's, I'm very proud of it. Um, but it's also the community. Mm-hmm. that you create, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what kind of keeps keeps you sober. Yeah, of course, of yeah. course. Do you have any read on what distinguishes the person who makes it from the person who can't? Because this is the the baffling mm. question of all time, right? Like I've been I'll tell you in this. rooms with people thinking that that guy's never gonna make mm. it. And that that person becomes like just a a pillar of sobriety mm. and you know, vice versa. I'll tell you this, time matters. Like success in long-term sobriety, the, the length of stay mm-hmm. within your center is a complete, um, it can't be denied. You know, the amount of people who celebrated one year, two year, three year, four year, five years at my center that stayed 30 days or less is minimal. Right. The ones who stayed 90 days or more, I mean, we have a whole squad. Yeah, yeah, of them. yeah. I can remember. I, I've never understood the 28 day, 30 mm. day thing. I, I, I just does? don't think that you can, you can really make a change in that. I, I, when I was in treatment at 30 days, yeah. I was barely awake. Who's the asshole that came up with it? I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Five day detox, 28 day program, 90 day outpatient program. Like who came up with this? You know, like there's people who were detoxing for a month and a half and you're only giving them five days on your health insurance. Like there's people that come to my center and 40 days into it, they're still struggling, Mm -hmm. you know, but they're not considered medically in detox at that time. Um, And the truth is at my center, we meet the real person on like day 25. Like seriously, like got, no bullshit. I got four days. I'm like, I, I know three weeks of you, Yeah, but we got to throw that out. Now I know who you really are. Mm-hmm. Let's start over, mm-hmm. you know, and, and introduce yourself. Um, that's when people start trusting, you know, three, three weeks, three and a half weeks in, they start feeling a little better about themselves and they, they trust and they're going to start being open and transparent and vulnerable. And that's where, you, that's where the work begins. Right, that's where it begins. Yes, yeah. but 28 yeah. days, they're out four days later. Right. Meanwhile, uh, you know, we need a lot of reformation in terms of how insurance works with this mm. access to, you know, legitimate uh, treatment, inpatient mm-hmm. care. All of these things need to be modernized and, and updated to yeah, of get course. with what's actually happening. I mean, I'm proud of it. Yeah, like I'm, you should I'm, be. I'm super proud of it. And I'm, 
a man in recovery and who spent a lot of his life in the last 15 years of my life around recovery. And um, it's, it's my greatest accomplishment, you know, Heron Wellness, Heron Project, Heron Talks. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely proud the way we, we have all carried ourselves, mm -hmm. meaning the runners in Heron Project, the students who I spoke in front of and um, the people who trusted me at Heron Wellness. Yeah. Like that's fucking big time. Like when a mom and dad, like I see a mom and dad coming in from, you know, Colorado and I'm like, they're opening up their trunk and they're grabbing suitcases and they're coming to me. Yeah. Like you just flew four hours to drop your daughter off at my place. Yeah. Like You're the guy on the payphone in front of Jack in the Box. That's fucking big time, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's big time. Yeah. You know, and that's, I, I never lost sight of that. I never lost sight of the, what a, what a complete honor um, that I've been given by servicing. Right, but I see somebody who, who relishes and embraces that responsibility, which is a huge responsibility mm. in comparison to the responsibility when you were young, which was ego-driven mm. of like acquitting yourself on a basketball mm. court because you lived in a town that, mm. you know, wanted you to do that. Mm. I mean, these are totally different things. That one, I mean, obviously you were young and you, didn't have tools, et cetera. But that all that did was create fear. Mm. And now you have this responsibility that's much greater and mm. graver. Literally people are putting their lives in your hands. Wild. And you're like fired up. Yeah, fucking right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I like, like I, I can't uh, paint the picture or, or tell it any better. Like there's a mom and a dad in the parking lot pulling out a suitcase to come mm. live at my place. Like what a fucking honor, man. Like what a responsibility, what mm -hmm. a duty, you know? And I'm, I'm extremely proud of that. Like we've created something really special there. And, you know, we hope people stay long-term. They become part of the community and, uh, and we do everything. I do everything in my power to, to service them while they're there. Yeah. You know? How does this work as a parent? You have three kids and none of them drink or use, right? Yeah. Nope. And no, never no. have. No. Which is wild. Yeah. Yeah. How did you accomplish that? I don't know. I think it's their accomplishment. You know, that's their, it's their story. Um, you know, interesting is that although they've never drank or used, I see some of my behavior in them, mm -hmm. right? And my- But that should make you even more impressed. Yeah, no, right? son. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but- there's parts of them, especially Christopher and Samantha, they were nine and seven. They saw uh, nine and seven years of a horrible side of me, you know, mm -hmm. very reactionary and aggressive and constantly in flight, pushing everybody away. Um, and that comes out in them once in a while. And I was in the kitchen like a year ago mm -hmm. and my little guy, um, reacted to something and I was like, fuck. There it is. That's me. And he sat down and I walked up to him and I, um, I put my forehead on his forehead and I said, sorry. And then I realized that's the first time I've said sorry to Christopher that way. I'm coming up on 15 years sober at the time. And um, I haven't made an amends like that. Mm. We cried like for 30 minutes. My wife, who 
is a crier. Like she just sat back in the kitchen and watched us and was like, you know, what the hell is going on right now? We, all that emotion, guttural, uh -huh. like came out of us. Um, but I said, sorry. And it was, I think what he needed and what I needed. Yeah. You know, which is pretty fucking cool. Yeah, so honesty, mm -hmm. open communication, vulnerability, owning up Superpowers. to your, your, your mistakes as a parent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's superpowers, really. Yeah. Right? Um, they've been able to witness for themselves what recovery has done for my life, for their life, for our family. Um, they've had a front row seat. Mm -hmm. And it scares me because they have not done drugs or gotten drunk. Because um, I feel like, I hope I didn't scare them away from it. You know? Like, and I say that like, I hope it was attraction, not promotion. Right. I hope they say, wow, dad, sober, like that's, that's dope. Mm -hmm. Like that's fucking cool. But in honesty, it's probably a little of both. Totally. Let's there's hope. nothing, there's yeah, nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And I'll take you know, both. if at some point down the line, they dabble with it or mm -hmm. whatever, the longer they wait, mm. the better they, you know, the better chance they are We're of be being, uh, you know, like not having that kind of like addictive response because their brains are more developed. We're back to the brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, 20, yeah, yeah. 25, 26 yeah. years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're kind of back to the ex. Like, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're at the same them, emotional right there. Yeah. Yeah, age right now. So you guys should just be like Hell a house yeah. on fire. Yeah, right? no shit. <laughs> right. uh, oh, man. Um, there's something so... You know, you would you would, you had said earlier, like I I don't like you know uh, you still struggle with mm. some regret and some guilt around your behavior and 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 you know the 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 graveness with which you take sobriety, but there is something about levity in the rooms mm -hmm. that I think is beautiful, mm. and it's just incredible to sit and witness somebody get up and tell their story and just own every aspect mm. of it, every embarrassing, you know, sort of shame mm. inducing, mm -hmm. you know, corner of what they experienced and doing it in service to other people so that we feel less alone. Mm. And I think that takes a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability. And when I started this podcast, I mean, I've been so impacted by mm. that, that I wanted to bring that sensibility to this for, everyday people because mm. I believe storytelling is such a, a powerful connector. And I think we learn through stories. Like mm. you can say, don't do this, do this, yeah. and here are the reasons or whatever. But when you're on the receiving end of mm. an incredible story, well told, that will take up residence mm. in you and, and linger and remain with you and influence you in ways that you know you may not even imagine. Mm. And I think you're very gifted at that. Mm. Um, and I know that you know, kind of in, in more recent years, you're like, I'm, I'm getting sick of telling my story or whatever, or bored of myself or whatever. But I, I think that you, know, you have to remember, like there's a lot of people out there who haven't heard it yet. Totally. You know? yeah, yeah. And it is so powerful. Yeah, and I walked in here today and I said, you know, like, I said, how incredibly blessed is he to have the people come in and just open up to you? You know, like, like you said, take up residency. Like it's, it's amazing. Um, the people that you've met just doing this and the mm -hmm. people that I've connected with. 
in the past 15 years. Um, my story will always be hard. Like if I'm comfortable telling it, get me the fuck out of the room. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm that guy, then like people ask me, am I nervous? I'm nervous 24 seven, to be honest with you. I'm on the edge of my seat right now. I'll, I'm speaking tomorrow and I'll be pacing before I walk out in front of a small crowd, right? If I'm not nervous, like get me, mm. take care of me because I'm not as healthy as I, as I'm presenting to be. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I would have thought you would have had more peace with it because mm. you share it so much, you know? Not yet. Yeah, it's still haunting you quite a bit. It is in a good way though, right? Like mm. I, I think, and, and, and again, 15 years, like I, it's the echoes, right? Like I'm telling it and I'm worried about my children, mm -hmm. you know, and the impact it has on them. Yeah. It was very like, it was very hard in the beginning. Like I would walk into a high school and speak and my son was in high school. I mean, the amount of little hate, little messages he gotten on Instagram because his daddy, the drug addict was at this school. Like it was painful. Mm. You know, we, we had some major moments as a family. Like, is it worth it for us? You know, hurt people, hurt people. Right. You know, and they they went at my children. Wow. For my story. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So so hear that. there's been a there's there's been a lot of sacrifice on uh -huh. both ends. Yeah, I would imagine it's a little different now because when you started speaking, you only had a couple of years of sobriety at that point, right? Like you 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 hit that hard early. Mm. Most of my presentations are the first day. That's what pretty mm -hmm. primarily right. There's probably two hundred. 20 a year and the majority is for first day. I probably tell my story 20 times a year mm. where it used to be the opposite. Yeah. You know, but again, at a certain point, I started feeling too scripted. Like you gotta start checking sure. yourself. Yeah, like that's, that's not good. No. Yeah. Like am I too fucking, am I too scripted? And then you're like, did it happen that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, just bullshit. It's, it's weird. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've, I've had that experience. Yeah. yeah, it's not It's not a great feeling. Mm -hmm. And that makes you not want to share your story no. or, or to really deconstruct the whole thing. Mm. Because it, you're like, I've said it so many times. Is that what happened? Or mm. is it because I keep saying that that mm. I've convinced myself that mm. that's the way that thing happened? Yeah. And you say it so many times, it's tough to connect to. Yeah. Like you keep going to it mm. and you got to latch onto it, right? So then you get into self-preservation and it's like, stay away from that because you're exhausted. Mm -hmm. You know, like now you've, you've gone across the boundary of you, you're exhausting yourself. You're hurting yourself therapeutically by saying this stuff so much. Yeah. So you try to kind of get some separation in it. And then it's, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's tough to manage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I but feel it's beautiful. You. I mean, I can't imagine doing mm. that much public speaking. Mm. You know, I can only do it a couple times a year. Yeah, that's it. Um, well, we should round this out, but I w I, I want to end it. Um, yeah, with uh, with a word about a word towards the person who's out there who's still suffering. Mm. Um, maybe somebody's listening to this; they're confronting their own behavior for the first time. Maybe they're snapping out of their denial. Maybe they're wondering whether they have a problem or not, and maybe mm. need to look at it. What is, what is the message you wanna leave people with before we end this thing? Mm. 
Again, you just you gave me a snapshot of about fifteen different. I know. Sorry, I fifteen different that. people. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna ask this one question and then I complicate. No, no. It. I, I I think this the freedom. You know, the freedom to look within the the the, the freedom to take a chance on yourself to to find a different version of you. Um, again, re- recovery is the greatest accomplishment of my life. It has nothing to do with the Boston Celtics. If you walk in my house, honest to God, you will not, you'll walk through my home and you will not see one thing about basketball. I do not have one uniform, one picture, one ring, one article in my home. So anybody who walks into my home doesn't say like, oh, there's a basketball player who used to live here. But you'll go to my sink and there'll be my 15-year chip sitting there on the on the on the counter, you know? You'll go to the coffee stand and they'll see, you know, something with recovery. You'll know that before you'll know mm-hmm. basketball. And I'm just proud of it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm super proud of it. And never in a million years did I think on June 4th, 2008, when I was walking out of that hospital, life is gonna get good. Life is gonna get real good. And life got good. There's always hope. Totally. Yeah. You did the work, man, you know, I love it. Um, Thank you. You're a gift, dude. Uh, It's super inspiring to talk to you. I love um, hearing your story, but also really appreciate the humility Mm. um, that you bring to the whole experience, you you know, and and at times discomfort Mm. sharing some of that stuff, Mm. you know, I could sense that but I think it's really powerful. And uh, you're a beacon of hope for so many people. And there's a lot of people suffering out there right now, you know? So we need more guys like you. I'm blessed to be a beacon, right? You are, So you are, and you wear it well. Ah, You look good, man. Thank you, brother. Yeah, Um, at your service, if there's anything I can do to help you. Awesome, same. uh, Yeah, man, I'd love to stay in touch too. Love you. Awesome, cheers. Thank you. Peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voice of Change and the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg. Graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. 
see you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.